Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, and actually speaking to you from our newsroom here in Hong Kong for the first time in a long time. We've got a special bumper episode for you this Monday, given our original Friday plans were delayed somewhat by the process of extricating myself from hotel quarantine and navigating the various levels of paperwork and PCR tests required. We're starting off this week with a look at what was officially termed the United Nations Human Rights Office Assessment of Human Rights Concerns in China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. You'll hear a somewhat sleep-deprived Finbar Birmingham talking about the contents of this report and the rather dramatic way it was released to the public at four minutes to midnight. And our colleague Mimi Lau will give us an idea of the intensity of Beijing's response after that report came out. We'll head to Washington, D.C. for a very educational chat from Kinling Lo concerning Taiwan and the kerfuffle over drones flying over its troops. The headlines have all been screaming about Taiwan shooting down a drone. But exactly what part of Taiwan and where that part is in relation to mainland China is extremely relevant, especially in a week where we confirmed the fifth major weapons deal signed by the Biden administration to sell weapons and military technology to the government of Tsai Ing-wen. And we're going to finish with a very pertinent discussion about Operation Vostok. It's a massive military exercise being run by Russia, involving 50,000 troops involving its own army, as well as soldiers and equipment from India, Laos, Mongolia, Nicaragua, Syria and China. These exercises continue until the middle of this week, and they're happening on islands that Japan calls its northern territories, islands they lost during the Second World War to what was then called the Soviet Red Army. Julian Ryle is going to update us on how the Kishida government is not just keeping a wary eye on it all, they've made some pointed announcements about new long-range missiles they're installing, as well as seriously increasing their defence spending with just one aim in mind. Going to war should mainland China decide to use force in reuniting with the self-ruled island of Taiwan it considers a breakaway territory. And let's not forget the combined might of the Russian and Chinese navies are gathering in the Sea of Japan as part of Operation Vostok. And right now, there's a super typhoon headed directly for them. Batten down the hatches, it looks like stormy seas ahead. The original host of this podcast, Finbar Birmingham, is our EU correspondent, normally based in Brussels, but as I speak, he's in Paris. Finbar, late last night, you filed a story that's been a year in the waiting, and that's the United Nations report into alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang. What are the major takeaways? Hi, George. Yes, it was a dramatic day. Um, We'd heard uh, sort of early afternoon or late morning that there were planning to release this report, uh, which was, a, I have to say, it was a shock 
um, a lot of the news outlets had already written their obituaries of of Bachelet, so to speak. They had um, Michel Bachelet, who was who was until yesterday the High Commissioner on Human Rights at the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights in Geneva, um, talking about how disappointing her tenure had been for activists and for those who wanted her to to go harder and sort of um, and to, to release this long wait long awaited report. Uh, and then at the at the last minute, it, it arrived. So they they told us in the afternoon that it would come. They didn't say when. It arrived eleven minutes before midnight, uh, on her last day in office, after some internal arguing over uh, what elements should be incorporated from the response from China. Uh, there was some debate over the language. There was uh, a, a, a huge frenzied effort to redact. Uh, pictures and names of Uyghur people from the extensive 100-odd page document and response that China had sent over at the last minute. And so this is why it arrived in, in my inbox at 11 minutes to 12 Geneva time. And, you know, it was really, in terms of the, the content of the report, it was much stronger, uh, much more critical of China than many people thought it would be. It was not as critical, of course, as some of the activist community would want it to be. There was no mention of genocide, which is a term that the United States and other parliaments around the world have, have uh, some parliaments around the world have, have designated what's happening in Xinjiang. Um, worth noting that the United States is, I think, the only government that's actually taken on this language. But it did say that the Chinese government has... Uh, the behaviour and the policies in Xinjiang may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. Now, that, that's actually massive. You know, that, that's huge um, for, 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 for the Human Rights Office of, of, uh, of the United Nations, of which China is an incredibly important and influential member, to say that the, the Chinese Communist Party may be committing crimes against humanity in one of its regions. I mean, that is just huge. Um, it talked about serious human rights violations and urged for the Chinese government to repeal them. It linked Beijing's employment policies in Xinjiang to forced labor, found evidence of torture in detention camps uh, that China refers to as vocational training centers. It had a lot of language about unusual and coercive government actions that led to starkly plunging birth rates in Xinjiang. Uh, you know, and it, it really did t touch on most of the uh, abuses that have been flagged by uh, Uyghurs who have subsequently left China, those who have family members who have disappeared. Um, and it, you know, and that, and that to us was, was, I think it was much more uh, harder and harsher than, than certainly I suspected. And in speaking to Contacts. There was a lot of frenzied WhatsApps being shared, and signal messages being shared um, among government officials, uh, activists, um, you know, uh, you know, think tankers who follow these issues very closely. And I have to say, most people were surprised. Uh, it really was was stronger than most people thought. Um, and 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 you know, I suppose Bachelet uh, showed that. She, she had spent the previous couple of weeks defending herself uh, from the criticisms that she had taken 
a lot of people were saying that uh, you know it shows that China has captured the United Nations, particularly the uh, the the OHCHR, which is her office from from the inside. Um, this shows that certainly Bachelet was still wielding independence up until the end. Um, you know, there, there, there was some speculation yesterday that certain parts of the report may have been watered down around sterilization. Some diplomats were, were sharing this information, uh, which would have been an area that might have been able to point towards the language of genocide. Um, but as it stands, we have a, a situation where the report is much stronger than people thought. And, and we had quite uh, sort of uniform responses from the usual Western governments yesterday, the EU, the UK, Germany, the United States all weighed in with their comments welcoming this report um, and, you know, urging China to, to stop these policies. Beijing's official responses, I'm, I'm sure you'll hear, uh, it doesn't suggest that it will, will do anything. It denies all of these reports. It says it's uh, anti-China smears and sort of Western governments. Now, this is the this is the one of the key points. When I was talking to European Union officials who work in the human rights area before this report came out, they had been really eager, really desperate for for Bachelet to get this out. The reason being, all of the research that to date uh, on, on Xinjiang that's commonly cited, be it from the Australian think tank ASPE, which takes funding from the United States defense industry and defense department, I think, um, which, you know, and the various think tanks, which are sort of dismissed and battered away as being funded by the CIA, by the Chinese government and by supporters of, 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 of Beijing. This is seen as a sort of unimpeachable document China is an incredibly influential member of this organization. And so the officials that I was talking to were saying, OK, well, whatever it says in this article, it is irrefutably, um, irrefutably independent. It's not something that can be just uh, battered away because it's not, you know, it's not a, a Western organization, so to speak. It's a global organization. It's not... You know, nobody can can really question um, Bachelet's independence. She's been criticised quite strongly when she went to Xinjiang for 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 being too cosy with the Chinese government, if anything. And so this is why Western officials were really keen for this to come out. Um, now, where does it go from here? We don't know. Uh, is this going to be something that will inform new policies? Uh, the European Union is about to unveil in a couple of weeks, a forced labour ban proposal that my sources tell me is incredibly weak. It's incredibly low level. It's not aimed at China. Uh, they went around the houses in order to ensure that it was not uh, aimed at China. They didn't want to fall out with China over this. So they've made it a ban on products made with forced labour, both internally in Europe and externally, so that it doesn't seem as though it's targeting China. But, you know, there's not much time to change it at this point. But I wonder if these uh, United Nations um, findings might help inform that document. Uh, I'll find out a little bit more about that early next week. Um, you know, some speculation that this may be the, the grounds that could be used for further sanctions. Uh, we don't know. Let's let's see. But 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 suffice to say, it was a it was a day of drama 
Uh, it was a late night. We were all poring over this document until the wee hours of the morning. Uh, myself and colleagues in our Washington bureau. Uh, so, look, it was uh, Bachelet went out with a bang. Uh, she she defied her critics who who said she was afraid to release it. Eleven minutes before her term ended. We'll of course hear a, a detailed response covering Beijing's. Uh, reaction to this report in just a few minutes, Finbar, but can I ask you, the UN released its findings, but what of its recommendations in this report? What is it suggesting China do in response to this evidence it has presented? I mean, it's, it's asked China to effectively end all of these these um, policies to, you know, release uh, those who have been detained. Um, it's it's urged the international community to act in tandem on this to, for for other countries to stop repatriating Uyghurs at China's request. The international business community needs to step up here. The report says, uh, you know, so it's it's really has thrown the ball into China's court. Um, let's see if it makes any difference. I mean, the fact that China denies any of this is happening suggests perhaps not. But I mean, I'm not an expert on that. Let's let's uh, wait and see whether Beijing takes these on board. I mean, it's quite uncomfortable timing for China coming uh, just a few weeks before the, the party congress, um, you know, and uh, whether or not that makes any difference, I don't know, but it certainly is, is uncomfortable and awkward. You know, this is a sort of huge dramatic international event um, that, that Xi Jinping and uh, other Chinese Chinese leaders probably could have done without. Finbar, there's going to be a lot more analysis about this, a lot more discussion. Obviously, it's going to fuel much of the sentiment coming out of the the US Congress uh, and various other bits of legislation. Thank you very much for your time, and we will look for your reports on scmp.com. Thanks, Jared. See you later. Mimi Lau is a journalist with our China desk and normally one of the main presenters on our Inside China podcast, but she joins me here today. Hello, Mimi, and welcome. Thank you, Jared. I'm glad to be here. Can you take us through how Beijing responded to this report? Sure, Jared. Understandably, the report really angered Beijing and they responded with a very harsh tone emphasizing it was all but a scheme plotted by the U.S. and other anti-China Western forces. A former U.N. human rights chief appeared to have made an excellent connection with the Chinese leadership when she visited in May, but um, appeared to change her mind after she left. So right after that report was released overnight, um, the first response we got was issued by Liu Yuyin, the spokesman for the Chinese mission at the U.N., describing the report was a he refers to slander and smear China. He said the report distorted uh, the Chinese laws and policies and counterterrorism efforts in that region, Xinjiang. And it also exposed deep-rooted bias against an ignorance of China. We also noticed that um, the report did not receive any mention in the Chinese state media. But the harshest uh, response came from Wang Linbin, China's foreign ministry spokesman. He hit back saying the report was wholly illegal and invalid. He said the report is planted and manufactured firsthand by the U.S. and some Western forces to control China with the Xinjiang issue. He also called it misinformation and attacking human rights officials for thinking to becoming the thug and accomplice of the U.S. and the West against the vast majority of developing countries. 
Mimi, given that Beijing has so thoroughly rejected this report, described in the terms that you laid out just there, how does it affect its relationship with the United Nations? It is expected to be worsened generally. The report was not uh, seen as a UN effort as a whole, but the individual report by the, the UN's rights commissioner herself. One of the uh, experts we interviewed, Shi Yinghong from Renmin University, expected that um, the report would not ease up attacks on China's Xinjiang policy, nor the sanctions related to the region being lifted. But because the Western powers are already preoccupied with other issues such as the Russia and Ukraine war, it wouldn't worsen their ties with China significantly either. Now, is there any sign Beijing is changing its approach to governance in Xinjiang? Well, actually, uh, before the report was released, we are already seeing several signs of how previous security measures uh, being imposed in Xinjiang have gradually shifted towards another direction. But uh, as one of the experts we interviewed, um, put it in particular, Wang Yiwei from Renmin University. He actually admitted that um, there are clearly aspects of Xinjiang's governance that need to be examined and improved, given the region's emphasis on security and stability. But Beijing would never consent to that kind of demonization by the West. He pointed to one of the office signs saying that um, the region actually have shifted away from security towards economic development and tourism. It's a change um, signified by the replacement of former party chief Chen Quanguo with Ma Xinrui, the former governor of Guangdong. And of course, there was that visit in July this year from Xi Jinping himself to Xinjiang, his first visit in eight years. And this came at the same time as the United States putting its ban on goods manufactured in that region over concerns over forced labour. Is there any sense that China will continue to argue this case against this UN report or is this the end of it and that now they move on? Personally, I do not see there will be a significant shift of the existing stance. As um, we can see, Beijing has been sticking to the same rhetoric throughout consistently by rejecting vehemently over the attacks um, later point by Western nations. Unless there's drastic changes domestically within China, I think things are likely to stay at its current state for the time being. Mimi Liao, thank you very much for that report. And people can, of course, read the response in full on scmp.com. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Kinling Lo is our diplomacy correspondent based in our Washington DC bureau and has been reporting on this week's escalation in activity off the coast of Taiwan. Kinling, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. Kinling, I'll start by choosing my words very carefully. There's been shots fired by the Taiwanese military at a drone operated from mainland China, but these shots weren't fired from the island of Taiwan itself. And this is a fact I think that's pertinent in this story. Can I ask you for a quick geography lesson on the Kinmen Islands, please, to give us context of what's happened? Taiwan has many outlying islands, and Kinmen Islands are one of those. And they are actually on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. So it's much closer to um, the major Chinese port city of Xiamen in Fujian province than it is to 
the mainland of Taiwan, um, if we have to speak geographically. And the shooting of the drones um, that happened on Tuesday actually took place over somewhere called Erdan, which is one of the uh, Kimen Islands. And it is as close as four kilometers to Xiamen. And actually, uh, we, we, when we consider the entire Kimen County and the small islands um, that are part of it, the closest part of Kimen to Xiamen, I've seen analysis saying that it goes as close as, you know, even less than two kilometers at, at some locations. And it's really just a ferry ride away. And thank you for your story on SEP.com because it sent me to Google Maps to look up both Erdan Island and Kinman Island or part of that group on Google Maps. And they're so very close to Xiamen and mainland China. But this is being seen as a significant escalation that Taiwanese soldiers shot at but did not hit uh, these drones. Was there any warning this was about to happen? So the entire military escalation that is now still ongoing in the Taiwan Straits ever since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit on August 2nd, when Beijing has made it very clear that their military activities were in response to what they see as a U.S. escalation, encouraging pro-independence forces in Taiwan uh, through the visit. And the flying of Chinese drones have been repeatedly uh, reported by the Taiwan Ministry of Defense. Uh, I looked back at the press releases from the Taiwan's defense authorities before Pelosi's trip. And ever since early August after Pelosi's trip, if not every day, it, it has been reported every few days by the Taiwan's Ministry of Defense that there has been Chinese drone flying into this, its airspace. And most of the time it's over Kinmen. So uh, that has been, I guess, a new normal now following all the other military escalations, including Air Forces and um, Naval Passage in the Strait by the Chinese. And let's not forget the missiles that were shot over Taiwan and some of them into Japan's exclusive economic zone. We saw last week video of Taiwanese soldiers throwing rocks at these drones now they're shooting weapons. Has there been any official statement from Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen uh, about this? It's an interesting timing because um, Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen has visited one of uh, Taiwan's military's outposts also on Tuesday. And she gave a speech where she said Taiwan's military would take necessary and strong countermeasures to defend the safety of Taiwan's airspace in particular. One thing that has caught public attention through videos and photos. Basically, the videos that showed um, Taiwanese soldiers throwing rocks at what they accused as um, Chinese drones flying into their region was very official for you know the general public in both mainland China and Taiwan. But then the effect of those videos, at least in Chinese social media was that it enforced the nationalistic public to think that they can basically easily get photos and you know information of their Taiwan counterparts through just flying a drone. And the fact that the Taiwanese soldiers were throwing rocks at the drones, I guess, appeared to show weakness in the eyes of those Chinese social media users, which were mocking them. Uh, saying that, you know, it seems like you have no other way, way to respond apart from 
throwing rocks when you know they 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 are they belong to an army with real weapons. Yes, when you talk about the very intense nationalistic presence on Chinese social media, the idea of soldiers from Taiwan's military throwing rocks at a drone would just seem to reinforce the idea of military superiority uh, from mainland China. I was wondering, has there been any official response from Beijing about this new red line almost that the Taiwan Defence Ministry has put out saying, we're going to start shooting down your drones? So I don't see any particular response on this incident, but then the Taiwan side has also been careful in their press releases in their statements, they sometimes condemn Chinese for using drones, but they never say these drones that they found in their airspace were originated from China. But they do say that these drones, after they left the Taiwan-controlled airspace, the statements would always say that these drones fly back to the Xiamen direction, which basically is accusing them of being from there but not confirmed whether they're indeed being flown by the PLA or just some curious, if not daring, uh, civilians uh, on the Chinese mainland. And while Taiwanese soldiers are throwing rocks or just having a couple of pot shots at drones flying overhead, we've got a report that the White House is lobbying Democrat senators to support a new billion-dollar weapons package for Taiwan. Has there been any official confirmation of that story? This reported bill that would be a 1.1 billion US dollars worth of missiles and support for surveillance radar would be the fifth US arms sales to Taiwan ever since Biden came into the White House. And we should know that he has only been president for less than two years. So this is definitely um, significant. And I'm sure this will prompt a strong response from Beijing. Indeed. Now, back in our August 5th episode, I asked Rob Delaney whether the visit from Nancy Pelosi would inspire other lesser known US politicians to make visits to Taiwan to burnish their credentials and standing up to China possibly in the lead up to midterm elections, excuse my cynicism, but is it true now Republican congressmen are booking flights to Taipei? Yeah, I mean, following Pelosi's visit, there has been more congressmen who have been actually visiting Taiwan. And most recently, Arizona's Republican Governor Doug Ducey has landed in Taipei um, on Tuesday, and it was reported that he's going to meet President Tsai. This happened only 10 days after another Republican governor, Eric Holcomb of Indiana, landed at Taipei. Um, and it's not just uh, U.S. senators. It's also European lawmakers and even Japanese uh, lawmakers. So it has definitely um, prompted a series of visits to Taiwan. That's quite interesting, Kinling, that these governors are flying over to Taipei with the agenda of trying to get some of Taiwan's world-famous semiconductor business, possibly to move back to their home states. I'm guessing the summer break is still happening for Congress and Washington, D.C. is a bit quiet right now. Is anything coming up for you in the near future that you're watching for? Well, actually, yes, there is something huge that could be upcoming. That's the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022, uh, which is in the pipeline right now to maybe go to Congress when it restarts in September. And if 
that goes to the floor from the atmosphere that I gathered and from the people I talked to, they mostly think that there's a huge chance that this is going to pass. And a significant part of this act is that it aims to fast track arms sales. So if that takes place, it will mean that there will be more substantial military ties. And part of it includes uh, training for the Taiwan forces. If this goes through, I believe we will see another round of new military tensions. A lot of weapon sales, uh, a lot of provocative visits to Taipei, not many flights to Beijing and not much talk of diplomacy. Kinling Lo, we will watch SEMP.com for your upcoming report and analysis. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Julian Ryle is our Tokyo-based correspondent. Welcome back to the podcast, Julian. It's nice to be back. Before we start, I, I read this morning that Typhoon Hinamnor is well and truly on its way towards Japan. Are you all buckled down there? We are, we are. Um, it's uh, it's in the south primarily at the moment. Um, it's going over the uh, Okinawa Islands and then swinging slightly north. Um, I think Kyushu is going to get hit pretty bad. They've issued an awful lot of warnings about uh, high waves, high winds, um, and an awful lot of rain. Um, I've just looked out the window um, in my home here in Yokohama, and uh, it is lashing down. So I think we're on the uh, the, the forward edge of this, and it's going to be a bit rough for a couple of days now. Today is day two of Operation Vostok, where China and Russian naval vessels are conducting exercises in the Sea of Japan, while tens of thousands of troops are gathering to Japan's north. How's it being reported? The government um, has been quite strident um, in its criticism of the uh, of the Russian um, drills, the, the Vostok uh, maneuvers, um, but not perhaps because of the drills in themselves. Um, I think the perception is that every country has the right to carry out its own military exercises. Uh, Japan's complaint is that they're being held on islands that Japan claims as its own. Um, these were the four islands that make up what Japan refers to as the Northern Territories, but Russia insists on calling the, the Southern Kurils. Um, these were seized by Soviet forces um, in 1945 um, at the end of the war, uh, when Japan was already badly defeated and had little opportunity to defend this te- these territories. So uh, this has been a, a running sore between the two governments ever since, and it has actually stopped the two governments from ever signing um, a formal peace treaty to end the Second World War. So it's obviously a long-standing issue. Japan very much claims that those islands are its own. And it has come close to sort of reaching um, uh, agreement with Moscow um, uh, in the past before Mr. Putin became president there. They've come close to reaching agreement with previous uh, Russian leaders about perhaps joint development of the islands, joint economic development, um, or partly returning, say, half of the islands, the southern two um, uh, of the uh, the territories. Um, But Japan's held out for more and as we all know, no agreement has ever been reached. So Japan's position is that these Russian drills, or these actually multinational drills led by Russia, are taking place on Japanese sovereign territory. And that is a big, big problem for the for the Japanese. The sense is if they don't complain, it weakens their claims to uh, you know sovereignty over those islands. They really have to, 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 to make a, a protest. And they've done it quite 
strongly. They, they've spoken very, very strongly. Interestingly, I saw that um, India is one of the nations that are taking part in these multinational drills. And they went out of their way to inform the Japanese government that their forces would not be taking part in any exercises that actually took place on any of these islands. So India is part of the Quad, uh, as we know, with Australia, Japan and, and the US. And it's a loose uh, alliance of, of like-minded nations. So India is quite clearly keen not to offend um, Japan. And they went out of their way to say that their units would not be taking part in, in drills that actually take place on the disputed islands. Well, that's very diplomatic of India. Has there been any official word from Beijing, uh, from the PLA, about their approach to these, as Japan calls them, Northern Territories? Uh, no, I think uh, the Chinese are perhaps staying out of that issue. Obviously, you know, they have their own um, uh, territorial uh, disputes with uh, with Japan, um, as do the South Koreans and I think the Taiwanese as well. So clearly Japan's in an area that uh, a part of the world that is... Uh, uh, it is fluid, you know, and history has has, has led to these um, these different disputes. No, China's um, concerns primarily um, around the islands in the East China Sea. Um, Japan refers to them as the Sengakus, um, the Chinese, uh, the Diaotai, I believe, and the Taiwanese also. They have their claim, and they call it the Tiaotai, I believe. I have to excuse my Chinese. So that's the hot spot, if you like, between Beijing um, and uh, Tokyo in terms of territory there. Well, it's an interesting bit of timing this week because on Wednesday, Japan's Ministry of Defence unveiled plans for both a new long-range cruise missile and a high-velocity ballistic missile, presumably to be able to strike targets in China and Russia. What have you heard about that? Yeah, I don't think the announcement is uh, is a coincidence at all. Um, you know, the, the Russians have been signalling that the Vostok uh, drills are going to be taking place. The Chinese have been busy um, around Senkakos, the Diaotai. So uh, this is clearly connected to that. And of course, we're all sort of living in the aftermath of, the, of, of what happened in Taiwan um, when uh, Nancy Pelosi was there not long ago. So tensions have been ramped up in the uh, in. in in the, in the recent weeks, and you know the, the drills that are taking part in place in in Russia seemed an opportune time. I would have said for the Japanese to uh, sort of announce uh, plans for these new weapons. There's been a lot of of military development in Japan in, in recent years. You know they're transforming their helicopter carriers into full on aircraft carriers. They bought F-35s from the Americans and have more on order. They've recently announced plans to develop a future generation fighter with the British government. They've recently put in place a first a Japanese version of the Marines. They're down in Sasebo, which is in, in Kyushu, clearly you know, if ready for any contingency that could happen in the Southern Islands. And uh, one of the very most Southern Islands of, of the Okinawa archipelago has um, recently been given a large uh, military unit and anti-shipping weapons. There's an awful lot of going on. Oh, and of course, recently they, they just launched um, a next generation submarine, the first of a new class of, of, of very, very capable um, uh, diesel electric submarines with more on the way. So, you know, it's in the air, it's on the land, it's on the ocean. Everything points to Japan seriously ramping up um, its military capabilities. Five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, Japan was deeply concerned about, uh, about North Korea, you know, an unpredictable regime, 
lots of weapons, lots of spending on, on long-range ICBMs, um, and also it's nuclear capability. Now, I don't think there's any confusion in Tokyo that China is going to be um, Japan's long-time rival in, in, in the region. And I just think that events in, in, in Taiwan over the last couple of weeks have really sort of crystallized that thinking and perhaps brought forward you know, plans for upgrading improving Japan's military capabilities. I've just seen that the uh, the, the budget request for the uh, for the defense ministry uh, is significantly higher. Um, again, uh, this year it's just gone up to 5.5 trillion yen, which is a record 41 billion uh, for next year. And uh, another in- interesting element of that is they're not actually telling everybody what it's all going to be spent on. So clearly uh, they are sort of withholding some sort of uh, some sort of elements of where it's all going. But yes, it's going to be it's going to be surface to air. It's going to be surface to surface missiles. A lot of it, um, and uh, you know, just improving the air and 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 sea capabilities primarily. Now you mentioned this visit by Nancy Pelosi and the ramifications that seem to still be going on. I'll get to that in just a minute, but. Because in the last couple of weeks, you filed pieces that showed the complexity of Japan's relationship both with China and Russia. But can I start with Russia first? Can you take us through these findings about how Japanese businesses are refusing to break contact with Russia when you know many other nations that it allies with have done exactly that over the war on Ukraine? Yeah, I think that was a surprise, I have to say. The, the Japanese government has been absolutely in lockstep with uh, with the Americans, with the Europeans. You know, it, it's been firm on Russia. This cannot be allowed to stand. They have to get out. It was surprising that just 44%, I think, of Japanese companies that, has a pre- that had a presence in Russia before the invasion of Ukraine have pulled out. And actually, they've not entirely pulled out. A lot of them have sort of mothballed their operations um, or, uh, you know, they've just shut down temporarily with the, with the full intention of going back. And of the, you know, it was 170-odd uh, Japanese companies that, you know, really were there before the conflict started, a handful have said, that's it, we're out, we're not going back again. Um, Eneos was one of them, which is you know, a big fuel company, a Fanuc uh, manufacturer. Um, but that is a, a, an astonishingly low number of companies compared with the Western companies that have done the same. And, you know, you speak to these companies and they say that, uh, yes, we're very much looking out for our local staff. We've got to consider them. We've, we've worked hard to build a, you know, a, get a, a, a foothold in the market there. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to look after our staff. You talk to analysts and they're like, no, it's all about the bottom line. They uh, want in the future when sanctions are, are, are lifted and when the world goes back to normality, they want to be ready to go back straight in there and, and, and resume you know, business as usual, which is you know, surprising perhaps because in the grand scheme of things, Russia doesn't really account for a huge amount of, of their earnings. You know, car companies, you know, the Nissans, the Toyotas, um, uh, Japan Tobacco, you know, has bluntly refused to pull out. And I put to them that, you know, isn't this hurting your your reputation uh, as much as your bottom line? And they're like, yeah, but people forget. People have got short memories and, you know, it'll all go back to being all right in the end. That's a highly specific variant of optimism, which uh, we can only hope works out for them. Uh, let's speak about China, uh, somewhat forgotten in the hectares of opinion pieces regarding Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was that she visited Tokyo not long after. And that really brought into focus how Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is walking a fine line of diplomacy between China and the US. How did this play out for him? 
Yeah, I, I actually think it was uh, the the Japanese Mr. Kishida was was far firmer than Mr. Yun in South Korea. So Nancy Pelosi went from Taipei to Seoul, and uh, Mr. Yun he didn't actually meet her in person. Um, he had a phone conversation with her, and uh, one of his senior ministers did meet her. But you know, conservatives in South Korea were quite. We're actually very disappointed that he didn't actually go out of his way to meet her. Um, you know, the diplomatic protocol would have said he should have been there. And the contrast with that when she arrived in, in, in Tokyo was stark. Um, she was given the red carpet treatment. She um, she met, you know, Mr. Kishida, but also the defence, the foreign and other ministers as well. And it wasn't only China on the agenda. Clearly, there's trade and other issues going on. Um, but given what was happening around uh, Taiwan in the aftermath of her visit, you know, that really did take the headlines. It, it was the, the top of the agenda. Um, and Mr. Kishida, it was fairly clear that Japan sides very, very strongly with the US and um, you know has its position that is aligned with, uh, with Washington when it comes to Taiwan. This, of course, again, we go back to the security or the defense situation. Japan is ramping up its its military spending, and uh, the, the sense in Tokyo, which has been sort of articulated by Mr. Kishida, is that should there be an invasion of of Taiwan, then there is no way that Japan cannot be involved. You know, any invasion of Taiwan would essentially necessitate a Chinese attack on Japanese territories because of all the the American military forces that are presently centered in, in, in Okinawa. Those would be the first Western or US forces to respond to any attack. Therefore, it is inevitable that those would be the target of a preemptive attack by the Chinese forces. It's just inconceivable that they wouldn't. So, you know, the, the doctrine now is that Japan is going to be involved should an attack on Taiwan happen. And I think there's a growing sense here that it will happen, perhaps not this year and maybe not in the before the end of this decade. But the growth of China, um, it, its military and economic might and a, a leadership that is clearly committed to this course of action, whether it be peaceful reunification or not so peaceful reunification, it's just a matter of when. And I think Mr. Kishida has said on more than one occasion that this part of the world is very much facing a situation that we see in Ukraine at the moment, with lots of parallels, you know, the, the nationality or, or, or quite who belongs to what. Um, so, yes, I think, you know, we've seen a significant increase in, in defence spending this year, and I think that is going to increase in, in the years to come. Well, Julian Royal, it's not an allegory to say that there's a storm coming to the Sea of Japan. I hope you're tucked away, all safe. Thank you very much for your time. Always good to speak. That's all for this week and many, many thanks for the feedback from our listeners in Melbourne, Vancouver, Berlin, London, New York, even mainland China over the past few weeks. It's great to hear from you all. Don't forget you can keep up with the latest from our reporters via Twitter at SEMP Economy or indeed visit our website publishing the latest from our 24-hour newsroom at SEMP.com. I've got a feeling it's going to be one of those weeks. We'll see you again on Friday. Stay safe, stay sane, stay in touch. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.